After 17 years as a tech CEO, fighting the naysayers to lead a revolution in LED lighting, Chuck Swoboda has a lot to say about what innovation means. It's not just a matter of creating something new. That new thing also has to provide value that a customer will recognize and reward. In this Hack the Process interview, Chuck explains how he learned to leverage failure without making it an objective. What changed for him as his company grew from 30 employees to several thousand? And why the best opportunities often come from being told something is impossible? Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Today, I'm speaking with Chuck Swoboda, and he's the author of a book that's coming out called The Innovator's Spirit. It's going to be out on May 5th. Chuck, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm doing great. Sheltering in place like the rest of us. You got it. Yeah, but otherwise doing great. And I'm interested in talking with you about this book that you have coming out and about your work with Marquette University, I believe. That's right. Yeah, no, I've written a book and I'm, I'm currently the innovator in residence at Marquette University. I love that title. And uh, the book is about innovation. The title is about innovation. So give us a thumbnail. What What is innovation in the context of what you're working on? So it's interesting. Uh, you know, I had spent a bunch of years running a technology company and, you know, someone said when I was done and I'd retired, they said, well, so how'd you do it? And I'm like, I, I don't really know. We just did it. it. You know, it wasn't something we talked about. It's something we kind of did. And so I spent the last couple of years trying to figure out what was it that we actually did. And so that kind of led me into a process of thinking about, first of all, what do I think innovation is? Because, you know, as, as you're well aware, that word is used so often, it's probably more of a buzzword. And so I actually had to do my own definition. What I focused on is in my world, innovation was something new, solves a customer problem and has to create value. And you have to have all three of those things. And the reason I distinguish it that way is I wanted to make sure it was different than invention. They're both important and necessary things, but I would go about them in different ways. And so innovation combines those three elements. And that really became kind of a crux of what I was trying to describe, because I think that's what we did especially well when I was at Cree. I love that distinction you're making between innovation and invention, because I think that a lot of people conflate those concepts. And I imagine that in your role, you've had you had to do both. Invention is absolutely a part of the process. So to give you an idea, when I retired from Cree, we had over 5,000 issued U.S. patents and more than that in the pipeline. So we had been inventing for years, but only a small number of those turned into an innovation per my definition. And what I found is that what you do to invent something, that creative process, it's like step one. And it's relatively easy compared to then making it solve a problem and create value. So if you think about the patent office, I have no idea what the numbers, but my guess is it's probably billions of patents. Most of them actually don't solve a real problem or create value. And so that concept is what defines what I think of as innovation, but more importantly, what I wrote the book about, because the book isn't about how do you invent something? It's how do you then make it create value? And, and it's a different process. And so that's really what drove me to write the book and try to distinguish it from what others are talking about. It's intriguing, as I, I think I'm not sure that a lot of people in my audience have had the opportunity to deal a lot with the patent office. But I think our general sense is that you don't patent something unless it's going to create value. 
the patent office just cares if it's if you can claim it's novel, really, and you can prove that someone else hasn't thought of it before. The vast majority of that stuff does not solve a problem. And and I think the trick is not just solving a problem, but the creating value. And that really is an idea we borrowed. You know, it goes back to Thomas Edison. So Thomas Edison, you know, he had a quote that said, you know, I don't want to just develop things and I won't get the quote exactly right. But he said he cared about utility because utility is proof of value. And so he was very focused on as he was, by the way, a world renowned inventor, but he was actually a great innovator because he took those ideas and turned them. He created markets for them, for example. So he didn't just have a light bulb. He actually convinced people to want a light bulb. And that's a huge part of what I'm getting at. And that's one of the distinguishing things is that you know, the premise of the book is that innovation is not a process. Fundamentally, it's a mindset. And that if you get people who think the right way, they can be very successful. But if you take people who don't think the right way, the process won't work. It doesn't mean there aren't tools you want to use. There absolutely are. There are value-added things you can do, but without the right mindset, you have no chance to be successful. And I think that's why there are so many companies that talk about it and yet never do it. And in this case, you're defining success as you have to basically solve the problem and create value. So at some point, if someone won't trade you something of value for the thing you've invented in some way, shape or form, it doesn't have to be money. Then in my mind, it's not an innovation. It's just an improvement. And by the way, that also distinguishes a lot the difference between improvements and innovation. So I ran factories as part of my job at Cree. Six Sigma and those processes, they are phenomenal improvement techniques. They work very well. They absolutely get in the way of the behaviors necessary for innovation. So yeah, because if you think about it, essentially what Six Sigma or Lean or all those things are is you take a process that you have and you try to get rid of the variabilities. So you dial in to get it exactly right every time. Well, an innovation, according to my definition, is something you've never done before. So it can't be in the distribution. So by definition, anything that's good at keeping you in the distribution will limit you from doing anything innovative. I love that insight because one of the things you notice when as soon as you start trying to normalize the curve and get everything to fit within that norm, that great idea that would have been a far outlier at the very edge of that curve gets averaged out of existence. Oh, yeah. It, and if you think about it, it's you know, you're trying to come up with something that's not even under the curve. And so if you use all these techniques that are, by the way, very useful, but they don't work very well. And so, you know, that's where I got into this thing of, you know, so why is it that people get stuck? Well, the premise is, is that the reason you don't behave in a way that's innovative is because there are some core beliefs that you have that limit you. And those core beliefs come from essentially life experiences, whether how you grew up or what you've experienced. And so, you know, to give you an idea, most people go through life and one of the experiences they get is they've learned that it's better to avoid risk than to take risk. Or they've learned that, hey, we should strive for best practice instead of no, we should never settle. We should always push for something better. Or one that's probably really applicable to today's environment, they view a crisis as a problem instead of an opportunity. And those are the innovator actually looks at all three of those things fundamentally differently. And it's not a conscious thing. It's because their belief system is there. And so that's really what I'm trying to tease out in the book is so how do you figure out one if you have the innovator spirit? And if you don't, how you might go about discovering it? I imagine that a lot of that avoidance around innovation comes out of fear, uh, because as soon as you start pushing the boundaries of what you're familiar with, you're you're in unknown territory. The fear of failure, I actually have a term. When I was interviewing people for Cree, I wanted people that were unafraid of failure, yet unwilling to fail. So everyone goes, well, that's great. I, I want to be unafraid of failure. 
So you don't just want to be unafraid of failure, but you want to have this drive that goes with it. That's what I'm teasing out there because this is going to be hard. You're going to do far more things that don't work than do work if you're going to innovate. So you have to have this persistence to you. And so everyone talks about, hey, resiliency, that's really a critical characteristic. The problem is I can't give you resiliency. You can only learn it by surviving it. So literally going through life experiences where you've actually done something, tried and failed and then kept going, that changes the dynamic. And so we were literally looking for people that ideally had failed a few times in the past and kept going because that told us they had already had developed some of that resiliency. Yet, if you think about our school systems, we teach everyone to like get the right answer. I mean, my favorite example is I'm a relatively new grandfather and you give a young child crayons and a coloring book for the first time and they scribble all over the page. They don't care where it goes. And the first thing we tell them is, no, 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 no. Color inside the lines. Why? Why do we tell them that? Like, <laughs> And you think about it, though, your whole life experience is, is essentially being trained to get right answers and to kind of color within the lines. And so that's so much of what I'm trying to tease out is that how do we get at that mindset and realize that your current mindset is probably in the way. So you're going to have to undo something to get there. So how did you come to that? It's, I'm, I'm wondering about your own life experience where, the, where you yourself might have had the opportunity to be told to draw within the lines and discovered that drawing outside the lines actually had more value. So I would tell you that I thought I was pretty open to risk early on. I, so I grew up in a large family, six kids, fifth of six kids. So you get a lot more flexibility. You get picked on a lot more. You get tested more. So I, I, I had, a, I think, a great childhood where I got to test ideas out. But even with that, I'm working for my first job out of college in the Silicon Valley for Hewlett Packard. The guys at Cree offer me a job. I turned them down. I thought it was too risky. I was afraid of what might not work out. And it was that moment of having saying no and then thinking about it going, wow, I wonder if I did the right thing. Now, remember, this is I'm working for at the time. HP's cool. HP's kind of like Google is today. It was cool back then. And Cree was this company no one had ever heard of it. Like literally, they wouldn't even allow me in the building on my interview because it was so secretive. So I had to just trust these guys. But by saying no the first time and then having a chance to think about it, when they called the second time, I realized, you know, I got more to lose by not trying this than by sticking with what I'm doing. In other words, it was the bigger risk was doing nothing. But that took me a while to come to that. And then even when I got to Korea in the beginning, I thought I was kind of open minded about risk. No, the guys I work with, the founders. They had a new definition of that. And so I went through a series of experiences where I became much more open-minded. And I, and I would tell you, and I even start the book this way, the book is basically a pretty honest assessment that I had to learn to find my innovator spirit and to be comfortable with risk. Because I tell several stories where I was actually against doing some ideas that end up becoming the most important business decisions in the history of the company. I voted against them at one point. And it wasn't until you get outvoted and you see the success and you go, oh, I learned from that. So they, these are learned behaviors. And I so I think everyone grows up different. Everyone has different experiences. And so how do you put yourself in situations to learn them? That's interesting. So did you have the opportunity then to fail in a way that helped you develop your own resiliency? <laughs> yes. So Cree was about, a, you know, about 30 people and 6 million in revenue when I joined. And so I quit my job, move across the country, leave my wife, young daughter, my pregnant wife and young daughter back in Colorado saying, when you sell the house, come join us. And I go to work and the first day I get there, I said, well, hey, I'm glad you're here. By the way, we need you to go find some customers. And I said, why? They said, well, because we don't have any customers anymore. They canceled all their orders. And I'm going, what do you mean? I just quit my job, moved across the country, and I'm going to work for a company with no orders. Okay. 
Let's go figure that out. And so from that moment, it was figure it out. And every day was a series of whether it be go find customers to, hey, we sampled that product. I know that the customer really likes it. You're going to have to convince them we're going to go to a different product because it doesn't work. Or the day I'm sitting in my office about a year and a half into this, my boss walks in and goes, I want to show you a fax. We were making a blue LED, the only one in the world at the time. It was roughly, I'll give you a number. This won't mean a lot. We'll call it 30 microwatts. So a very dim blue LED. A competitor in Japan that I had never heard of had announced they had just developed a product that was 500 times brighter than ours and at the same price. And I'm going, wow, this could really suck. And my boss goes, no, don't worry. We're going to have one ourselves. I go, we are. Yeah. Well, what's it look like? I don't know. We're going to create it right now on your computer. So I sat at my Mac. We made up data sheets, what it needed to be. And he said, I want you to get an airline ticket and go take orders for it. Trust me, the guys here, they're going to figure it out. I didn't had no idea. They really didn't know how they were going to figure it out. But we bet the company, if you don't figure it out, you're going out of business. And six months later, we started sampling that product that up until that moment, we really didn't know how to make. So you start surviving these moments and you go, well, I, I could do that. Or, wow, that can't be all that bad. And, and so it was one of those types of things where these learned experiences kept building up to where I became much more confident in pretty much trying anything. So I'm going to go back and I want to ask, this is, it sounds like one of those necessity is the mother of invention stories. And it's a, it's a great example of that because it was necessary for you to invent something and you your company invented it. What about actual failures? So I told you that it worked, but along the way, I didn't mention the fact that half of those ideas that we first tried didn't work. I sampled things that that first LED, we actually found out about three months after we started shipping it, that it had a small problem, like it stopped working. And so what are you going to do? Well, we have to adapt, recover. Okay. Hey, you don't want those. We've got a better version of the product. Trust me, we'll take those back. And so you start dealing with things that go wrong every day. You know, in a small company, running out of money is a big problem. Early on, I remember we were a young public company and a shareholder lawsuit that came after the company. And like, wow, that sucks. And, you know, you go through that and you realize in the end it was frivolous, but it doesn't feel like that. And so and then later on, when I was CEO, we actually had a former founder of the company leave and he suffered from some mental health issues, which we didn't know at the time. And he sued the company. And so I spent two years of my life being accused of doing things that were made up, but no one knew it. You know, it was in the local newspaper. It was on the news. My kids came home from school, say, hey, dad, is this stuff my friends are saying true? Are you going to jail? And the answer is it's not true, but it'll you have to have, wait, it'll work itself out. So you survive those experiences. And by the way, people give you this advice at the time. If it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. It's true, but it's not very helpful advice in the moment. Yeah, I could see that. And it, it's got to be very challenging trying to hire for people who have had that experience because most of us hide that from our resumes rather than emphasize it. Yeah. And so I was a big fan of, so my interview, my technique evolved over the time. And so I got to interview people that just didn't work for me, but in anywhere. So I had a few things I'd like to do. I, I now call it the UFO test. At the time, it was just what I did. And so the first thing is I want to test for uncertainty. So I would ask people what's called a Fermi question. Typically, and, and I love to do this, especially to the non-engineers, to say, okay, I'd like you to tell me, how would you estimate how many barbers there are in the city of New York? And so some people look at you and they go, excuse me, can I look it up? No, you can't look it up on your phone. How would you estimate it? And what you would find is that people that were comfortable 
in the moment trying to figure it out. It didn't matter if they got it right. It mattered if they were comfortable dealing with uncertainty and trying to figure it out with what they knew. That told me a lot about them. So that was kind of the first one. And then the second one was I never asked anyone about their biggest success. I only want to know about their biggest failure. And we talked a lot about it. And I was listening for, did they have a big failure? Could they describe what they learned from it and what they would do differently the next time? And what you'll see is that people that can't doesn't make them better or worse, but it makes them not necessarily a very good risk in terms of pursuing innovation. I knew every day we were going to try stuff and something wasn't going to work as expected. So if they hadn't already developed that kind of that muscle memory where they were comfortable with that, we were going to be cautious about whether that person belonged in the organization. And then the last thing we did is the O stood for ownership. And so I would typically use their resume to find out something about their company. And if I didn't know the company, I would look it up. I'd look it up on the internet. I find some information about it. But to give you an example, I interviewed someone one time who had worked at Kodak in a very senior marketing role. And they were going to come work for Cree. And while we were talking, I said to her, I said, you know, I'm curious. So you worked at Kodak during the bankruptcy. And she said, yep. I said, why'd you let it happen? She goes, excuse me? I said, yeah, why'd you let it happen? She goes, I didn't let it happen. I I was just running marketing. I said, well, but like the shareholders paid you guys not to go bankrupt, right? Yeah. So why'd you let it happen? And And after I pushed her far enough, she started to realize, what could you have done about it, right? And what I wanted to see is, could she imagine things she could have taken ownership for that were outside her direct control? That she could have done. And in this case, she did. And by the way, she ended up coming to work for me for many years and had a great relationship. And she still tells people she almost walked out that day when I accused her of making Kodak go bankrupt. But the point was, she could adapt in that moment. And she was prepared to realize there was something she could have done. And to me, that said, okay, she's got the pieces that I think could survive in our culture. And, and I want to be clear. What we did wasn't better or worse. It was optimized for the problem we were working on. Our business was very much innovation centric. So I wanted people that were really biased to those types of beliefs. You didn't necessarily want the people I was looking for to come in and run your manufacturing line if you were looking for the highest yields. Or I recently had a chance to meet some people at an insurance company that are pursuing innovation. And they're like, yeah, we get what you're talking about. We want some of those people. But that's not the guy we want working in the claims department, because when you have a claim, we want him to follow the rules and go just as so, because otherwise it would freak the customer out. And so, so there is a point that it's really not about what's better or worse. It's about finding people that fit to the problem you're trying to have them solve. And for the people you're talking about, you were primarily interviewing for people in leadership roles, right? So I assumed everyone was a leadership role. So one of the my other thoughts is that you cannot manage innovation. So management in, in theory, in practice is getting people to follow some known rules or process to deliver a predictable outcome. That's what you're trying to do in management. That's not going to lead to innovation. It's going to lead to something you already know what the answer is. So I was looking for people fundamentally what I would call leadership biased. So I wanted people who were, they were comfortable trying to convince others, whether they had the title or not, that they could do something that might not be possible. And to give you an example, my last part of my interview process was actually to ask people about their title they were interviewing for. And I would say, so just tell me about the title. Do you think this title works for the job? What would happen if we had to change it? Or we're not sure we're thinking about moving around. And essentially what I want to know is if the title was important to someone, we were not hiring them. And if it wasn't, we would, because I get why title's important in some organizations. That wasn't how it was going to work in ours. And if title gave you satisfaction and thought that would give you a reward, I was pretty confident that 
the first time we ran into these problems I'm talking about, and you're not motivated by solving the problem instead of what you're called, you're not going to like it. So it was just a clue as to how someone's wired. Again, there's nothing wrong with titles. They have a place. But if you're looking for that mindset, I wanted leaders and I wanted people that were less worried about title and more about they cared about what they accomplished, not what they were called. That's got to be a difficult mindset to filter down through a large organization. And you said that the company grew to thousands of people, right? Yeah. At one point, we had about 7,000 employees. So what happens is all these things I'm talking about, eventually we stopped doing them well. So as Cree get lar got larger and larger, you know, so I started at 6 million. At some point, I take over a CEO or about $100 million. Then we grow to 500 million. Then we grow to a billion. Then we grow to one and a half billion. And we're on our way to two billion. And somewhere between one and a half and two, my very entrepreneurial innovation mindset style works really well to invent new products and starts to make it kind of painful to deliver predictable results. And public companies, shareholders aren't a big fan of surprises. They like if it goes up there, they had no problem. But we tended to be a little more volatile than others. Now, we were still growing net net, so they let us get away with it for a long time. But once the growth slowed and then we still had the volatility of trying to be very innovative, honestly, the feedback was is that's not what we want. So I had to actually learn to become a much better manager. So I would say, you know, the last five years of my career at Cree, I was mostly a manager and only a little bit of an innovator and a leader. And it was actually when I was leaving, when I was saying goodbye to the employees after I retired. So I did 16 plus years as a public company CEO and I'm saying goodbye to the employees. And it was that day I realized the things I didn't like about the company anymore were things that I put in place because I put them in place to manage the company better, which was what my job was, but they weren't the things I liked to do. And it was kind of an aha for me that you can be good at whatever you choose to be good at. But for me, I had lost kind of some of the passion for the job because I was doing the things I didn't like anymore. It doesn't mean it's not work, but my favorite part was let's invent this thing that no one else thinks we can invent. Let's go try to do that. Let's create a market that no one says is possible. That was the fun part. So did that lead you into what you're doing now at Marquette? Yeah. So what happens is I retire. And and as I said in the beginning, so what are you going to do? And so someone said, come tell us how you guys did this at Cree. And I, I didn't know. I, you know, we just did it. And so as I was researching, so I, someone must know how to do this innovation stuff. So I started actually reading the stuff Marquette was teaching in their innovation leadership course. They actually asked me to audit it. And when I got done reading it, it was published by a very famous business school. And I realized that almost none of it would actually work. This idea that you can manage your way through it is where I started to realize, oh, it's not that the technique they're describing is wrong. It's that if you don't get the mindset right, none of this works. And so, you know, they described articles about, you know, finding the risk reward balance. Well, no, like innovation, the more you want to innovate, the more risk you're going to take. It's they're directly correlated. And so this idea, hey, I want you to be really innovative, but try not to screw up too much. You've just decided not to be innovative. You can't have it both ways. And I think it was, so I went through that process and it goes, oh, wow, there is something interesting here. I thought what I was doing two years ago was helping Marquette improve their leadership innovation program. At the end of my great feedback session, they said, that's really cool. You need to write us a book. And I said, I don't know anything about writing a book. And they said, well, trust me, it can't be that hard. You should try it. And so I literally wrote the book for one reason only. And they said, we'd like to have your way of thinking as a reference. So when we're trying to teach these different viewpoints, someone can hear about this idea that it's also a mindset, not a process, because that's not what most people talk about. And so that's why I wrote the book. So how did Marquette know that you had the mindset that they wanted to encapsulate in a book and teach? So after I, I, gave, I started out with a speech that I gave and they go, hmm, 
you know, you said some stuff that's kind of different than what we're teaching. Then they asked me to look at the course. And when I came back and I wrote them a long-winded, long, multi-page, here's all the things that I would do different that I don't think work. And then kind of went on a rant and explained how the things they could do better. It was one of those, huh, I think there's something to this because you're the only person that's actually done it that we're using for this. And I think what they realized is that in an academic setting, it's very different. There's a theoretical view of it. And I had a completely non-theoretical, but essentially, you know, experiential view of it. And their point was, if you've actually done it multiple times, then let's just see what that looks like. Maybe there's something new to be learned here. And so, you know, honestly, when I first said it, my initial comment was, why would I write a book? This is common sense. And they looked at me and said, no, what you're saying is common to you, but it's uncommon to what we normally hear. That's why we want to get out there. And that was the aha to me. So honestly, you know, when I wrote it, it was a little bit hard to figure out what people would care about, because to me, after spending 25 years doing it, it seemed kind of logical. But after having done it now and wrote it and, and looked at case studies, not just at Cree, but I also looked at different industries as I went through the book to take each of the concepts. There's great examples throughout history of why this stuff does and doesn't work. And you know, it really does get back to how people think. I can see the distinction between what you were talking about and what an academic approach might be. I will say that it sounds like there's more correlation between what you're talking about and some of the business literature out there. The things that are being published from authors like you know, Reed Hoffman and the other folks who are talking about blitz scaling and about the different approaches to lean business development. Again, more contemporary than things from the from the 80s and 90s and from the Six Sigma world. Oh, I think there's some great stuff out there. And if you're thinking about Reid Hoffman, it, you know, they've lived it, right? There's a great example of a business that's, they've pivoted twice to do things they, sh no one thought. There's no business school case study that says you should do what they tried to do. There's also no business school case study that says a semiconductor company like Cree should decide to make a light bulb. That was an illogical choice. And so what there is some great stuff out there. But what I find is there, there's really two schools. There's there are what I'll call the applied view, which is where I would put Reed's ideas. And there's many others doing really interesting work in that area. But there is some other work being done, like Carol Dweck's work on the growth mindset. If you really want to get into what, you know, I didn't know how to describe it until I did the research for the book. She's basically describing the psychology of how this works. And, you know, some of the ideas I took, I borrowed from a guy named Dr. Gerald Bell, who's written several books. He's at UNC and does leadership development. And it was really about how do you convince leaders to create habits, new habits. And that's where this whole, you got to actually get at their beliefs. You can't just tell them to change. You have to understand what, what belief it is that's in the way and get them to change that, or you're not going to ever get a different behavior. And so there's a whole lot of human psychology that I kind of stumbled into. I am not a psychology expert. I'm an engineer, but I think there's an applied version of it that you're seeing in a lot of companies. I mean, look, if you want to see these ideas in action, you know, Steve Jobs was a great example of some of these concepts. No, that's absolutely true. And I, I spent a few years working at Apple, as a matter of fact. And I also work as an agile coach. And I work with a lot of engineers who are who are, have a different approach to how they work and who are realizing the value of failure, failure, failure in order to build up that level of understanding and the mindset to be able to succeed. Yeah. And I think, and so look, agile is one of those really powerful tools, right? I think one of the tricks we get into though, is I've seen people take agile and think that's all I need is agile. <laughs> and the answer is it's a tool. So if you give that tool to people with the right mindset, amazing things happen. But if you give it to people with a very management process mindset, you actually don't get innovation out of it. And so, and that's really the distinction that I try to help people understand is I am not anti-tools. I used all of them. But if you don't start with your brain in the right place, you're not going to get 
the output you're looking for. No, I couldn't agree with you more. I've seen so many people adapt Agile to be something that's Gantt chart oriented with all of the same waterfall mindsets that they've they've taken and just using the terminology instead of actually using the mindset that it offers. I had a chance to become friends with one of the co-authors of Design Sprint and who spent years at Google Ventures doing this concept over and over. And as we were talking, I said, you know, it's interesting. People usually come to me and talk about Design Sprint as this innovation tool. But it has nothing to do with innovation. It's just a way to get people to make a decision, like to test an idea and to make a decision. And fundamentally, if you look at what they were really trying to do with Design Sprint, it was to take startups that stopped acting like entrepreneurs and started acting like big companies and get them to stop, use your best idea and go for it. Right? It was just a decision making tool is really what it is. And yet. I've watched people go, no, no, it's an innovation tool. No, the way I describe innovation is it's just, it's a way to test your idea, but all the other pieces that go with it, you have to have those, you have to have the ability and willingness and frankly, desire to want to do stuff that other people say you can't do and you shouldn't do. And I think that's a really different mindset. You know, we had a product strategy for years in our lighting business where all we did was what someone else told us not to do. So, yeah. So the first thing we did is we we get into the lighting business because no one will buy our LEDs for lights. So I had a light, an LED that could make commercial LED lighting. I tried to sell it to every lighting company in the world. They all said, no, thank you. No one wants any. So, well, you'd have to actually make some and show it to them and convince them they want it. And then, no, 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 no. If the customer doesn't want it, there's no reason to make one. Okay. So we bought a small lighting company to force them to realize what's possible in the marketplace. And then as we got into the business, they still didn't move very fast. And so what they would do is they say, well, that product might work, but this other one won't. And every time a big lighting company told us or a lighting designer said, here's one thing you'll never be able to do. That's all we do is that was the next product we worked on. Because essentially, if you can see what people say can't be done, they're giving you a clue as to where those big problems that have value are. I mean, they're, they're literally telling you, if you want to innovate and turn it into a business, just do what people say you can't do. It's really not that much more complicated than that. And, and those are the big, wide open spaces in the market. So you're doing two things, right? They're telling you what to do. Yeah, it's hard to go figure that out. But when you get there first, that's where the business opportunity and the value creation opportunities lie. I love that model where you use that as, as your guide to see where the opportunities are. And the idea that you essentially bought a company that was selling this product, not because you wanted to sell the product, but because you wanted to prove to the industry that it was possible. That's a great approach. We called it the rabbit strategy, named after the old idea of a rabbit at the Greyhound track. So we wanted to create a rabbit for the big dogs, the big lighting companies to chase. And that was the concept. And we had to call it make it sound really good because we were paying a lot of money for a company with almost no revenue. And so you couldn't justify the valuations. So what we way we pitched it to the board and the reason they bought off is that it was actually a marketing strategy that happened to have a business associated with it. And in the end, by the way, that's the same reason Cree ended up making an LED light bulb was that we didn't do it because we thought we'd make a lot of money making light bulbs. We did it because we never Someone was going to have to convince consumers that LED lighting was a viable option. And after spending three years trying to make the big lighting companies do it and they wouldn't, we decided let's put something out in the market to get it to move. And so our whole vision of the Cree LED light bulb was it will be the world's first profitable marketing strategy. In other words, people will see a light bulb, they'll take it home, they'll try it and they'll go, hey, this LED lighting stuff, it really works. And as long as they do that, the market for LED lighting will grow. 
and we can do what we really want to do, which is sell them a, sell a lot of LEDs to the other lighting companies. So we we never initially got into lighting to be a lighting company. We did it to try to create a market for our other products. In the end, we ended up as a lighting company as well. I admire the wisdom of not trying to create a lighting company from scratch, but just acquiring one that was out there. Now, we had to create a relatively young entrepreneurial one, by the way, because you had to have one with enough of that edge that they were already thinking about doing what everyone else said wasn't possible. And so, you know, it, it is it's not about any lighting company. It's about one where the people we got were so critical. I mean, look, an acquisition has n almost nothing to do with the revenue and the profits. It has to do with the people or the brand. Those are the two things you can acquire and do something valuable with long term. And in our case, it was always about the people. If they thought the right way, it was worth way more than anyone else could have imagined. That makes a lot of sense. And that's very consistent with the way that you hired. Yes. <laughs> so Marquette asked you to write a book. I, I'd like to dig into that process with you a little bit because it can be challenging writing a book. And I'm curious how you approached it. What did you do when, when, that, when that became part of what you were trying to accomplish? So they said, don't worry, we'll help. Okay. What does that mean? We'll give you some questions you should start trying to answer. And so what we want you to do is just write every day, basically start a journal and try to answer these questions. And what they had done is they had taken notes from what I said didn't work. And they said, your notes are basically the outline of what could be a book. And they asked me to expand it. So I just started writing. And after two months, I had written probably 80 pages of a potential book. And I let my wife read it. And she goes, you should have those guys at Marquette take a look at this. I said, what do you mean? I go, do you like it? She goes, you should ask them. And I'm going, uh-oh. When your wife's not super supportive, you're in trouble. And so I go, hmm, I thought it was kind of dry. Now I know it is. And essentially what I had done is I had written a book like I would write as a CEO of a company. So I wrote earnings call scripts. They had to be approved by lawyers. I knew the difference between may, would, should, goal, target. You know, like I was thinking about everything I wrote like I might get sued about it the next day by a shareholder. And so I, I would tell stories, but I wouldn't write stories. And so as I got really frustrated, I ran into a friend and he said, you know, there's something called a ghostwriter. I said, really? I go, I've heard that term, but do people really use them? He goes, yeah, most CEOs don't actually sit down and just write a book. They get some help. And so what I did is I met this guy's name is Darren Dahl, and he had done 16 books at the time. Essentially, we'd talk on the phone for two or three hours, twice a week. And he would send me stuff back and then I would write from there. And what he taught me was that you can write the story the way you talk. And so people liked when I told stories, but they didn't like when I wrote. So I just wrote the way I talked. So the book is written in the first person. It is a conversation with me and you, the reader. And so I'm asking you questions just like I would in an interview. I'm asking you those same questions through the book to help you try to uncover this. That's how I would do it. And what I found is it made it easy for me to relate stories. And as I tested on other people, they found it far more interesting than trying to write it like a textbook. And so it became a series of stories, but stories not that I'm stories that I'm trying to tell you to get you to learn something from. And so, you know, we'll see as everyone gets to read it what they think, but it was certainly fun. And I never thought I'd write a book in the first person, but it ended up being really empowering. The set of stories, the way that you describe it, it sounds like a very engaging read. Do you collect stories from other people's experiences or are these mostly your own experiences? Basically, there's these 12 ideas or concepts in the book that are things that maybe help you get to think about how you might think differently. So I have stories from my experience that are part of each of those chapters, but then I have stories from outside of Cree. 
These are things that we researched as part of the book. And so in some cases, you know, I'm talking about, for example, I tease out whether or not is Apple still innovative or not. My premise of the book, I will ruin it just a little bit. But if you want to know why I think they're not, it's in the book. I also tease out whether I think Google is really innovative or not anymore. And for a very different reason, I think they're struggling with that as well. Yet at the same time, I get into not just tech company examples, but I talk about, you know, what did it take for Cirque du Soleil to basically come into business and disrupt the circus business? They essentially killed the circus business with a completely different model. That's a variation of what the circus kind of it's cross between circus and a Broadway show, right? So they, they created this very different. And so I talk a lot about how did they do it? What were they thinking? Why did that work when no one thought it would work? And I even get into some historical examples. So I even have a chapter talking a little bit about history and that innovation isn't just tech people. And we actually get into why I think George Washington was a critical innovator, not the ones you're thinking of, but why Washington was. Because at some point, the idea was representative democracy. So the founders came up with this idea. George Washington did. But if George Washington doesn't walk away from the presidency after the second term and peacefully transition power, the fundamental idea of democracy may never happen. By him leading us through that moment, he actually took an idea and he gave it a life that it could have never otherwise had. And there's even a quote in there from the King of England at the time who said, he's crazy, he'll never do it. No one should ever do that. And you start to realize, I want people to realize that the innovator isn't necessarily the person that came up with the idea. It's the person that makes it valuable, right? So innovators can use ideas from other markets and places and repurpose them. And so the book is really a combination of things I saw, but actually I try to find examples in all kinds of different places that hopefully make people realize they can do it too. Well, it's exciting to hear that you you extended the reach beyond tech. I think a lot of people have come to conflate the concepts of tech and innovation and just push that all off to the side so that if you're not in tech, you're not really innovating. In fact, there is absolutely no correlation between tech. Technology happens to be used a lot in innovation, but innovation, so I even have conversations about social innovation, because it's all the same mindset problem. It's still about, are you prepared to push yourself to do something others say can't or shouldn't be done? Are you comfortable with failure? Are you, do you learn from failure? Do you avoid it, right? Are you willing to take risk? One of the things we talk about is, are you prepared to embrace something called the brutal truce? So one of the commonalities I found is that we did at Cree, but in other very innovative companies, they get to the facts and they don't waste any time trying to make people feel comfortable about it. Pixar calls it can't, they call it the, the spirit of candor there, or there are other companies, Intel was famous for you know, these really brutal meetings or Shopify CEO actually talks about it. And he actually says, he tells employees that he wants people that understand they're responsible for their own mental state. So I give you the feedback. Your job is to take it the right way, not me to give it the right way. And so you create these environments where people think that way. And what I found is over and over again in these examples, it's a commonality among almost all innovators, whether it was 200 years ago or two days ago, or they were in social innovation or they were in tech. It, these commonalities exist. And so that's something that people can practice and try. I can see that. I can see that. So I, I'd like to dig into your own career development a little bit, because we've started right away with you becoming the head of a of a small company that was already making millions of dollars. I'm curious, how did you get to that point in your own career? 
So I'm an engineer by training. I get a job offer from multiple places. I grew up in the Midwest and I get a job offer to go to Silicon Valley in 1989. And that's about the coolest job you can get as an engineer back then. And so that's what I did. I moved across the country and I thought HP was going to be the most amazing place. And what I realized is, is that what Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard started was this phenomenal culture, but they become a large company and they couldn't be that way anymore. So when I met the Cree guys, I said no the first time, but then the second time I knew I just wanted to be in an environment where I could really try things. And the deal I made with the founder of Cree who hired me was, is I was thinking about leaving HP and going back at that time to get an MBA. And he said, don't waste your time. Come to Cree and I'll give you a Cree MBA. And the difference is instead of reading about it, you're going to do it every day and you're going to learn by trying things. And so look, I was 26. I didn't know what I was saying yes to. So I went for it, got to Cree. And when I get to Cree, remember it's 6 million in revenue. And I'm the head of sales and marketing, but we don't have any sales. So that's how I get started. And that transitions over time. I'm doing that for a while. Then we finally get a big design win. And my boss goes, you know, our LED makes their product possible. We should be in their business. Go buy that company. It's in Hong Kong. Yeah, I know. Go buy it. Well, how do I buy it? I don't know. I've never bought a company. Go figure it out. So I got on an airplane and went and figured it out. We bought the company. Sounds like an amazing opportunity. How does an engineer at HP, though, become a head of sales and marketing at another company? So when I got hired by H at HP, I was an engineer, but I worked in marketing. Aha. So at the time, HP hired engineers into just about every job in the entire company. And so I was really doing what you would consider to be more marketing, product marketing, sales development, those types of roles when I was at HP. And, and before I left, I even took a sales job. So that was really my training at HP. Fascinating. It, it's so few engineers get the opportunity to see the marketing and sales, sales in particular, that side of the company is almost a black box to the engineering world. Well, and in the end, fast forwarding, what your job mostly as a CEO is sales. You're either selling the vision to the employees, to prospective employees, to investors, to your customers. That's really what your job is. And so come to find out that was a really important skill. I didn't know it at the time, by the way, because so I'm at HP. I'm in this sales job. Then I'm running this small business we buy based in Hong Kong. That's going really well until that our major customer cancels all those orders. So then I have to basically figure out how we're going to sell two containers worth of products that no longer have a customer. So we came up with all kinds of crazy ideas to do that. And then one day, April 1st, 1996, I still remember the day, my boss calls me and says, hey, how's it going? I said, fine. He goes, it's about 5.30 in the afternoon. He goes, I need you to pack up your office and show up at the fab tomorrow. Why is that? Oh, uh, the fab manager got fired today. You're now in charge of the fab. Okay. So the sales and marketing guy who my manufacturing experience was as a co-op in college, was now ahead of manufacturing for a semiconductor wafer fab and testing operation. And so I showed up the next day and said, well, I'm going to have to figure it out. So I listened to the smart people around me, asked a bunch of questions, and I read one book called The Goal, which is probably the ultimate operations book ever written on basic operations theory. Uh, it's many times a bestseller. The author's now passed, since passed away, but it was actually laying in the office that I inherited when I went there. I took it home that read weekend. I read it and I became an expert in manufacturing. And so we tried those ideas literally over the next six months. And I got to basically, someone gave me the keys to a manufacturing plant and didn't really ask me if I knew what I was doing. And we figured it out. It's an amazing opportunity to, to learn and fail and grow along the way. Yeah. And look, you have to be able to fail, but you also have to have some success. So one of the things I always try to make, I get a little nervous when people say they get a real excited about this idea of failing fast. No, you want to succeed. That is the objective. If you're going to fail, you want to recognize it, admit it, learn from it and keep moving. But you don't get to stop. You don't get to say, oh, sorry, I failed. No, no. Like 
you still got to figure it out because like you got to ship something to get revenue to make the payroll, right? Like I wasn't afraid of failing, but I knew that I wasn't, when we failed, it was my job to go figure it out the next day. And then if that didn't work to figure it out again the next day. And so there's these two things that work together, but it was an amazing environment. And trust me, we had far more failures than successes along the way. Well, you know, the success is the trajectory you're constantly following and failure happens to be a, a blip along the way, as long as you just keep on moving toward that success. Yeah. And, and appreciate that every failure, if you really realize you have new information that you wouldn't have had if you didn't try it, when it comes to innovation, that's the magic, right? What do you know that someone else doesn't know? Well, a failure gives you that knowledge that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And so while you're not trying to, that's why you're not worried about trying something, a crazy idea that might not work. Either way, you have new knowledge that lets you make a decision that you would never have been smart enough to make before that. And when you start to get into that cycle, you go, oh, okay. And you get pretty good at making enough good ones to stay in the game long enough to finally figure it out. But yeah, there's just a different way of thinking about it. It's, I think after a while you just start doing it, it becomes habit. Well, so now you're, you're writing, you're speaking, and I believe you also lead a company that advises other companies, don't you? Yeah. So I started a small consulting company called Cape Point Advisors. And what that was is so retired CEO, people would say, Hey, can you come help us? And so I do some consulting, mostly around two ideas, companies that are either large companies that are facing a disruptive technology problem. So basically I was the disruptor. So I'm pretty good at helping them go. This is how the other guy's thinking about it. You might want to approach it this way or the companies that are smaller companies that are trying to scale. So there's not many people that went from 6 million to 1.6 billion, right? And went through all the steps. And so I typically get asked by, well, I'll say, you know, private company. So I'm on three private company boards as part of this today. And it's really about helping them think, how do you pursue these ideas in a way that's, it's not, you're not just taking risk randomly, right? There's an intentionality to it. So you can't be afraid of failing, but at the same time, you got to have a reason you're making these and helping these, really helping younger teams figure out how to do this in a way that leads to enough good outcomes to keep going. It's really not that hard to just fail. It's hard to fail and learn and point yourself in the right direction and be honest about what you learned. And, you know, that's one of the challenges, right? We love ideas that we come up with. So, uh, you know, I have a friend that said the other day, he had a great quote, and I'll just steal it from him. He said, so many people spend too much time trying to be right. They actually miss the opportunities for success. And you've got to get your mind into where you are going to try to be correct but that as soon as it doesn't work, you see what the opportunity that gets created. And that's what I find most of my consulting is around is it's not that people won't try it. It's that they don't recognize what they learned and then adapt and change, right? They, they're not willing to give up on the idea because there's just too much, you know, emotional content buried in it, or they want to prove they're right or for what, whatever that might be. And failure is just the universe telling them candidly, this is something wrong. Go fix it and learn from it. Yeah. Try something different. <laughs> That's great. So I'm sure people in my audience are going to want to find out more about you. I believe your book is available for pre-order. Can you tell us where we can go to find out, find out more about you and find out about your book? Yeah. So the easiest way to find out more about me is on my website at chuckswoboda.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty regularly posting there as well as at the Chuck Swoboda on Twitter. And I'm also a regular contributor on Forbes now so they can get it there. And then if you're interested in not my story, but some of the things I'm learning, I have my own podcast called Innovators on Tap as part of my work at Marquette. And that's not me telling you about what I learned. It's me learning with others and listening to their story. Because the fact is, there's a lot of innovation out there that aren't famous, and they've all got something incredibly useful for us to learn. Awesome. A lot of places for people to double click. Chuck, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing all of that with us. 
It's been a pleasure talking with you. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit HackTheProcess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>